0: This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit BoxesNarrows.com about participate to be a part of your pure written journal. And special thanks to Aksher, Moray and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes Narrows as well as the many other sponsors of the Idea Conference. Richard Farson once quipped, no one smokes in church, no matter how addicted. In short, context informs almost everything that happens in an environment and online social experiences are no exception. In this presentation, Senior Director of Product Ideation and Design at Yahoo, Inc., Luke Krabluski, discusses the attributes and implication of several popular social models by looking at data and behavior in the web's most popular social applications. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: What's up? So thank you all for having me. I'm going to be talking about the impact of social models as I understand it, but I wanted to start out with a little bit of a narrative. In 1992, there were 2,154 murders in New York City and 626,000 serious crimes. Within five years, those numbers began to plummet, or actually did plummet. Murders dropped 63%, total crimes dropped 50%, and those of you that read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point may remember some of the reasons why. There was a fellow by the name of George Kelling, who was tasked with uh, cleaning up crime in New York City at that time? And he had a uh, series of beliefs that can be summarized as the crime is the inevitable result of disorder. So he believed environmental cues and kind of the environment that people were in was directly responsible for some of the behaviors that he saw happening in New York City, in particular, all this crime and killing. So he hired a, uh, sub, a director of uh, the underground in New York, or the subway, to oversee a multi-billion dollar rebuilding system. This guy was called David Gunn, and David Gunn believed in this theory, and as a result, he cared an awful lot about graffiti. So he, when he, his quote about graffiti was, graffiti was the symbolic collapse of the system. Without winning the battle against graffiti, reforms and physical changes were not going to be possible. So Gunn let no car on the New York subway go back on the track with any graffiti on it once this car was sort of reclaimed, repainted, and cleaned up, they would never let it get vandalized again. His quote again was, um, we were very religious about it. And so this belief, this kind of theory they had, was the broken windows theory, which is the the environment essentially shapes what people do. And over the five-year period, as I mentioned before, crime plummeted around 50% in New York, so everybody became happy. Malcolm Gladwell, in The Tipping Point, generalized this theory as um, the power of context. And what he basically said is people's actions are products of the conditions and circumstances of the times and places where they occur. In other words, people are prompted to act based on the context of the world around them. Put perhaps more simply, and just because I like this quote by Richard Farson, nobody smokes in church no matter how addicted. If people are prompted to act based on their perception of the world around them, what's the impact of this context on people when they interact on the web, especially in social systems? There's a number of social models. When I say social models, what I'm referring to is social relationships modeled in software, in particular online software. What's the impact of that context we create for people when we render relationships digitally? And especially online, especially in a lot of these collaborative and communication-based products that are uh, growing like crazy. So, here's an example. Hope you, oh, I should, I should get audio. Hold on. Is there an audio cable? Oh, there we go. Is it on? Can you hear me? I'm making noise. You can't, hear. I, you can't hear that, but can you hear the noise I'm making on the computer? Blip, blip, blip. No? Let me try this. Is that making noise? No. Um, who should I be looking at? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Not happening. Okay, it's not happening. Okay, here we go. We'll use the speaker. Okay. All right. First hack of the day, really early. Okay. You guys hear that? Okay. Let's hope this works. Technology hacks.
2: Complicated? It's complicated. Okay, well, what are you looking for? Friendship, dating, whatever you can get. Let's just say random play. Because that could mean anything like like really, really kinky, horrible. What's he doing? Writing on your wall. Alright, really. Eddie, you dickhead. Everyone can see it. Okay, I've got some photos of you on our school trip to Paris and you're in the bath and you're covered in urine and sick. And I've written a caption, and I'm like, nice one, Eddie. That was my puke and piss. And mine. "Ah, Can I have those? Now that we're friends, I can show this to all your other friends, all your real friends in your proper life, like your friends from work and, and, and your potential girlfriends.
1: Sound familiar? So that's our context. That's how we're shaping human behavior through the ways we model social relationship in software. Sorry about the audio glitch there. But in more seriousness, to get a deeper answer on how we can model social relationships, um, when I first thought about this topic, I said, this is great. I live in Silicon Valley. I know people that work at all the biggest social networks online. In fact, a lot of them are at Yahoo, period. So I went and talked to the people that ran Flickr. I went and talked to the people that ran Yahoo Groups. I went and talked to people who ran Yahoo Answers went and talked to people at Facebook, went and talked to people at LinkedIn, and I asked all of them the same question, which is, well, you know, do you guys have an understanding of the impact of the social relationships you have in place on your site and understand how they affect contribution and what people do and how it's working? And I got the same response from everybody. Wow, that would be really cool to know. (laughs) Tell me what you find out. (laughs) Which was a little bit of a shocker. But then um, it was also a little bit encouraging that there was a lot of interest here, just not a lot of analysis being done. So once I realized that this talk wouldn't just write itself by talking to smart people, I actually moved on to trying to get some research, run some data. We actually even built a couple apps that we put on Facebook to glean data from that system. So caveat here is I'm going to show a bunch of numbers. They're not all equal in terms of how they're pulled, but given the fact that all the people that have this data don't have it really as well structured or they're hiding it from me. It's not going to be an ideal situation, but hopefully it sheds some light on what's out there. And because there's a lot of data here, I'm going to include lots of cute animals to keep you guys interested (laughs) and awake. And I'm also going to try looking as much as possible, because as I pointed out, context really makes a difference. I'm going to try looking as much as possible at social experiences that are sort of, context-ish neutral or flat, if you will, and what I mean by that is LinkedIn has a very professional bend, whereas people use Facebook for lots of different kinds of things, although there is always some element of context. But where possible, I'm going to try and look at things that are a bit more broad in reach as opposed to specialized niche social networks. So if these are the social models that are out there, and I'll talk about these in a little bit more depth, the question I'm trying to tackle here is, looking at these models, is there differences in contribution? And one of the early signals that we got quite a number of years ago uh, on Yahoo Answers was when we, originally Yahoo Answers had no form of um, personal relationships. It was just you are a member of this site or not, you are part of the community or not. When we introduced the ability to create relationships to fan people, we saw a 480% increase in contribution when the number of relationships when people went from a relationship to 20 relationships, their production in terms of the number of answers they provided to the system jumped. So there's clearly something going on here, and we'll take a look at this a little bit later. And by the way, there's a little bit of a leveling off here, which some of you are probably seeing, and we'll talk about that a bit later, too. So perhaps the easiest relationship to model in software is no relationship. But online, that's not necessarily true, because any two people that are users of the web are users of the web. So that might tell us something about how they might be related. And when you look at the capabilities we have available to us now when two people are on the web, we can actually do some interesting things. We can infer some kind of potentially social relationship by detecting their location. This is something that's getting easier all the time. So a lot of devices have GPS. GPS only works outdoors. It takes a couple minutes to get up and running, two to ten minutes. But it's accurate down to ten meters. Uh, With HTML5 and the uh, geolocation API that's embedded in that system and on, Safari and Firefox 3.5, you can get people's location down to about 50 meters using Wi-Fi beacons. And then further up the line, you can use IP, cell phone triangulation, so on and so forth. So we can get pretty close to identifying where people are and potentially some interesting uh, social relationships come up from there. We could also try aligning people based on their technology stack, what browser are they using, what operating system they have, potentially what settings they have. Maybe interesting, maybe not so much. But it might give you some sort of demographic or socioeconomic technical organization. And then lastly, we can look at places people go online through their browsing history. But none of these are really declared relationships. Though they're not declared, I think there is still something interesting to glean from them. Where we begin to see actual declared social relationships on the web is uh, starting out in what I'm going to blanketly call a community. And how do we define a community beyond a bunch of fuzzy, cute animals? Uh, Two people are basically in a community, in the way I'm defining it for the purpose of this this discussion, if they are both members on the same site and they can interact there. So for the sake of simplicity, I'm not including sites where people can't message each other or where there are no visible traces of what you're doing. Um, And in order to function as a community site, you sort of need communication and presence and some form of identity. Uh, The interesting thing is, increasingly, more and more sites are being set up with these sorts of features and functions. It's sort of becoming a, uh, if you will, basic requirement of doing business on the web. Now, people might say, okay, well, there's this vague notion of community. What does that even mean? Is that really a true relationship? Are these people connected in any way, shape, or form? Or just because they have an account and a profile on a web page, does that create any kind of relationship for them? There was a 2007 study published uh, looking over Yahoo Answers, where I'm pulling from some of this data from, that looked at how do people interact based on the connections between questions, questioners and askers. And what they looked at, they looked at about a million different users interacting on the site in the data set. And they found that overall the user base is connected in one big graph. So essentially There's one giant graph that had about 700,000 askers and 500,000 answerers, and that graph consisted of 1.2 million nodes. Then there was about 1,000 smaller little graphs of two to three nodes. So overall, people were connected through some level of activity on the site, which is essentially this notion of a community interacting and working together. They ran the same analysis even for... um, subsets of categories within Yahoo Answers. And the really interesting one was they ran it on local businesses, which is a geographic category, and you'd assume there things would sort of splinter off. Even in that uh, category, there was kind of one cohesive whole for a single community, a group interacting together. So from that kind of information, we know that an actual community is an entity and it's connected as such. We also know a little bit about how community participation works, and you guys have probably seen a lot of this around the web, but this is the 1%, 10%, 100% consumer a creator and uh, cr- creator triangle. So 1% of people make the stuff, 10% of people curate, 100% of people get to enjoy the benefits of that. And these are just some data points across Wikipedia, DIG, YouTube, and you can sort of see the creator uh, ratio holding across a diverse set of topics. So now within this site that allows people to interact and have some form of identity, people can also interact with each other, not just as a community, but within sets of people, such as a group. And we can take a little bit of a deeper dive into what makes a group. Essentially, we can define a group by a set of people within a community site or within any place that has the ability for them to interact online. And groups, if any of you have sort of traced the history of social stuff on the web, were some of the earliest social interactions on the web. Uh, people, it's a clearly defined relationship because people choose to join a group or are invited to a group and begin to actually participate in there. Groups can live for a really long time, or they can sort of pop up and fizzle off as interest um, bubbles up and then fades. And groups allow people to communicate one to many. They also give them content that is of interest to them, People stay engaged in groups when there's either really interesting content, really interesting members, they're playing a game together, or they're continually being alerted when new stuff's happening. And groups in particular span a range from being very relationship-focused to very topic or information-focused, and you see different kinds of behaviors in these different kinds of groups. So, groups that have a very high number of messages tend to be more relationship-focused. Groups that have a high number of members and page views tend to be information or topical focused. When you have very few members of, when you have these groups with very large members and very large page views, very, very few of those people actually have any kind of offline relationship. They don't even know each other. But those groups, the ones that have the most members, tend to have the best stuff. They have the most uh, relevant content and you can judge that based on looking at kind of their membership numbers. Groups with the most messages, and those are the kind of relationship-focused groups, have the broadest level of participation, and um, at least half of a relationship-based group's members participate regularly in over 70% of those groups, which is pretty big. Um, however, this probably is not news to any of you. Participation across most groups is skewed towards few people. The other really important thing about understanding groups that people sometimes don't look at, and this comes from an analysis of Yahoo! Groups that uh, was published, is that how groups define their findability and how they define their moderation and membership rules actually has a pretty strong influence in how those groups behave. So there's kind of a matrix, if you will, of listed and unlisted versus open, restricted, and closed. Listed means you can find it on the open web. Unlisted means somebody's got to tell you about it or you have to be invited. Open means anybody can read and post. Restricted means members can post. But when you say you want to be a member, you're automatically become a member. And closed is only members can view and post and somebody has to say yes, you can join this group. So groups that are not listed, unlisted groups, and and groups that are restricted or closed produce significantly more relevant content for people. And then if you couple that with the number of members, you got a pretty good indicator of what's a group, good group and what's not a good group. In terms of determining uh, which of these groups is relationship-based, if you see a group that's closed and unlisted, chances are that's a relationship-based group, and that's where you're going to get a lot of participation. To simplify this, public, semi-public, and private, this is kind of an easier way to think about it. Public groups tend to have... Um, a lot of information and they also are more susceptible to abusive behavior like spam and trolling or people who post way too often. Anybody ever be on a mailing list? Okay. I think you might be familiar with that one. Um, and then private groups tend to be the best behaved behave because people probably know each other in real life and that kind of keeps the peace, if you will. So that's kind of groups in a nutshell. So. These places where people have identity and presence and can collaborate could organize into groups. They can also declare sort of explicit personal relationships, if you will, and we can model those personal relationships inside of software as well. So when we look at that, we saw from the Yahoo Answers data earlier, the introduction of a one-to-one sort of a personal relationship can actually encourage conversations, can encourage sharing. And I mentioned before, jumping the number of relationships from 0 to 20 actually drove a 180 percent increase in the number of answers on um, Yahoo Answers. So doing this stuff can be valuable. Perhaps the most common form of personal relationships in social software is what we call the uh, two-way connection. And with a two-way connection, essentially you get everything at once. So I know you, you know me, we both say we know each other, and anything that's available between us is automatically shared. Um, And then, so you get everything at once, and then in order to turn anything off, in terms of sharing or information or have you, you have to actually tune it and adjust it. The problem with that is very few people take the time to then go tune what you signed up for when you do that handshake, right? And this is sort of the situation I think Facebook found themselves in when they moved to their new design, when they moved to this real-time view of everything everybody's doing. That wasn't the deal you signed when you made this two-way connection right you said hey I'm declaring I have a personal relationship with this person but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to know every single time they plant a crop of vegetables in Farmville Um, anybody see Farmville anywhere Okay. so um, the other interesting thing about two-way relationships that really differs them from what I'll talk about next which is one-way relationships is if either side says no more I don't want this relationship the relationship goes away Right, so control of the relationship resides with both people. And usually there's no notification when things are severed, so on and so forth. Just some top-level data, and I'll pull this together into some more interesting findings in a bit. But in this kind of two-way model, generally 10% of people account for 30% of what's happening. And in Facebook in particular, and I'm using Facebook data A because I could get my hands on a bunch of it, and B because, like I said, it's relatively broad social environment. Uh, there's a lot of contribution going on, right? These are actually pretty solid contribution numbers if you compare them to what we looked at with the, um, the community numbers earlier. So another form of personal relationships is the one-way relationship. You see these in places like uh, Twitter, Flickr, Yahoo Messenger, so on and so forth. Uh, Another way this is kind of referred to frequently is asymmetrical because it allows you to have an audience bigger than the people you're paying attention to. Contrast that to that handshake relationship where I know you, you know me, we get to see everything about each other. In this case, I don't have to follow you back, right? I don't have to see what you're doing. I don't have to get all your stuff in order for you to, to get all my stuff. So um, the nice thing about these is they're relatively easy to establish. You don't have to wait for somebody else to agree so you don't get stuck in kind of connection limbo where you have a whole bunch of people that, you're, I don't want to say no to these people yet, but they're sort of sitting in purgatory and you never make that connection, right? It's sort of the friendship void, if you will. Uh, The other thing that's interesting about one-way relationships is I think people don't necessarily realize how complicated these things are below the surface. On the surface, they seem really simple, follow this person or not. But below the surface, there's a whole bunch of things going on that actually make this a relatively complex uh, relationship. So and I I think it bears a couple seconds to explain what I mean by that. If you look at just basically how this works, Mr. Panda can follow Mr. Dragon. Mr. Dragon can follow Mr. Panda. They can both follow each other or they can not follow each other at all. But what also can happen is Mr. Uh, Dragon, when Panda tries to follow him, can say, I block you. You can't follow me. That creates a different kind of relationship. Mr. Dragon can also make his account private so that Mr. Panda has to get permission. And if he gets permission, then he becomes a permission follow, which is another kind of relationship in addition to the four up here. You can also categorize one-way follows and associate that categorization with content and sharing permissions. So this is kind of how Flickr's one-way model works, in that in Flickr, somebody can follow somebody else, but they can label that person as a friend or family or both. And there's different permissions associated with you're a friend, you're a family or not. You get to see stuff that I restrict to that set of people. And the other person doesn't have to reciprocate that. So again, it's not this two-way relationship where we both have to say, okay, we're both friends, or okay, we're both family. I can just say, yeah, that person's family. He doesn't have to call me family, and he can still see the stuff that I say is for family only. They can also be permission-based by default. So Yahoo Messenger is an example of taking one-way connections and making them permission-based by default. And what happens here is I send a request to somebody else, they accept, and then I have to accept, This is sometimes a little weird. But once that permission is given, there's no way for either side to sever the relationship. So this isn't like a two-way relationship. I can't revoke the permission I gave you to follow me. What I can do is I can block you or I can appear offline to you, but I can't break that relationship because it's a one-way relationship, right? The, the relationships are independent. That said, many people get confused and assume it works as this kind of mutual thing because they both have to agree. So if I've confused you, this is a good thing because this is my point here. One-way relationships enable lots of different social relationships, which means they're pretty powerful as a way to model online relationships, but they're also potentially complex. So this is just an example of... User A is following user B, and user B is following user A. User A has a private account that he allowed user B to follow him. User A also marked user B as family and friends, but user B only marked user A as friend. In the other relationship here, user D has a private account, and, users, and but he tried to follow user C, and user C blocked him. All right, so this nuance and the subtlety, you can learn a lot. By how people interact through the ways you can model these relationships. Um, So I mentioned this stuff gets pretty complex and it's hard for people to understand. But in the real world, I think relationships are also complex and hard to understand, right? So you sort of have more flexibility here than you have in the two-way model, where it's like, you know, friend confirm or deny, (laughs) right? Here you have a little bit more subtlety in how you tune that. Um, However, unaided, if you go and talk to people in the real world and you ask them to describe their connections, they're going to organize them based on the context in which they know them. So they're going to say, these are friends from school, these are coworkers. this is family, etc." They're not going to really be thinking along these terms. In fact, a permissions connection model is very confusing to people and even after you explain some of this stuff to them, they're still kind of like, huh, well, I went to school with that guy, right? Oh, but do you permission him? Are you going to block him? Are you going to keep your information private? Or are you going to categorize him as family? It's a little uh, challenging. So, hopefully, you're still with me on the one way model. Here's some data on this in contrast to some of the stuff we saw for the two way. And again, we'll take a look at the differences here. So, this is kind of the over overview of those different models that we, of those different social models we can represent in software. And again, as I promised, I'm going to show a a lot of data here, and I'm going to try and kind of keep those in the context of some of these broad social experiences. So looking at that main question, do these different models affect contribution? If you compare sort of the big daddy of two-way relationships right now versus the big daddy of one-way relationships, Facebook to Twitter, you see that there are some differences in terms of, this is looking at status update information, There are some differences with how often people do this, but it's pretty close. And this difference may be because of the way people perceive Twitter versus any real difference in relationships. When you look at the amount of people responsible for, or the amount of content responsible coming from a percentage of people, 30% of people in a two-way big model like Facebook are responsible, Sorry. 10% 10% of people are responsible for 30% of stuff that gets done, whereas on Twitter, 10% of people are responsible for 90% of the stuff that gets done. That's a pretty big difference, right? And it's actually a huge difference. And then if you compare a two-way relationship versus a typical community site, and here what I did was I just looked at how many videos are uploaded to YouTube versus how many page views there are, and I looked at how many content contributions, not counting status updates and comments on Facebook there are, versus how many page views there are and I got some really big differences in terms of percentages. So, 50 and, and this is just one measure. You can look at this lots of different ways, right? I'm just doing page views versus contribution contributions. That's a pretty big contrast. There was some research done at Harvard Business School that sort of modeled this out in a curve and this sort of shows the difference between some of these miles so in a one-way model, 10% of Twitter users account for 90% of content. In Wikipedia, 15% of people account for 90% of the content. And in a typical social network, 30% of people account for 90% of the content. So there's some differences going on here. And it's interesting to me to see how some of the kind of lightweight relationship-based one, uh Systems mirror some of the stuff that happens in just a general community online where people have an identity and can interact. So do these things affect contribution? Looking at this stuff, maybe yes, right? I mean, I think there's some interesting things going on here and here, but I don't know if that necessarily solves the problem. I think that where there's actually more interesting stuff is where you dig a little bit deeper into it. So yes, social models may affect contribution, as these relationships get tighter, but there's some interesting things that come up when you compare these things across each other. So the first thing that comes up, which probably isn't much of a surprise, is there's sort of a limit on the number of sustainable relationships. And I got data from today on Facebook. People have about an average of 120 friends. In the early years of Facebook, from when it started to March of 2006, a.k.a. when everybody in college was on it, that number was a little bigger, but it's still pretty much very close, right? And I found that surprising given the growth of the types of people that have come onto the system from 2006 on, whereas when you look at the way it was used in college, it's like you had everybody you knew in college on Facebook. And then even on Twitter, where you have this kind of public one-way relationship, 92% of people there are following less than 100 people. So, of course, this is our famous sort of Dunbar number, and you can debate um, the merits of that but it there what they basically outlined or what Robin Dunbar outlined, is that 148 is really the size of a stable social network based on our brain size or based on the information our brains can handle and across these different relationship models that kind of holds in fact looking at sort of the charts here and by the way this chart is just sort of the front end of this chart is really extended because it goes one to zero to 10, 000. these are basically the same charts right a lot of people have very few Folks, they're paying attention to and then very very few people have a, an awful lot of people that they're paying attention to it really starts to approach zero pretty quickly um, in this case right right around you know here's like 120 and the thing just poof, plummets right so that's point one and there's these relationship limits across these systems and I'll talk a bit more about that moving forward Interesting point number two is, despite the relationship model, there's really tight-knit circles that sort of exist within these systems. Um, When I mentioned that Yahoo Answers study that identified there's kind of one big group of people interacting as a community, there was still 1,600 small groups of two to three people sort of interacting as cliques, if you will, in that site. On Facebook, an average guy messages Four people directly, average woman messages six people directly, average guy posts on seven different friends' walls and a woman posts on um, ten friends' walls. That's not a lot of people when you look at the fact that the average number of friends people have is 120, right? That's a very small, tight-knit circle relative to the amount of people you sort of said are my friends, right? Confirm or deny. Um, and then in Twitter, this was a really interesting study done over at HP Labs. They basically saw, they, they defined friends on Twitter as anybody you've addressed an at message to, sort of a direct public message to, twice or more. So it's a very loose definition of are you a friend or not, and right? you can argue that's doesn't really show friendship that much. But even when they used that really light definition of friendship, they found that 92% of Twitter users have an average of about 13 friends. So it's, this is a little scary but the average number of people that people actually care about and do things with is probably around 10 or so. And uh, the other point that kind of kicks this in in that Twitter study is these tight-knit circles are mutual. So when I mentioned before they define friends as people you directly message through using at, not to be confused with the direct message on Twitter, those of you that are familiar with that, when they looked at if somebody sent two messages to one person, did that other person send two messages back? 90% of cases that answer, in 90% of cases, when that happened, those people were following each other, okay? Those people had a two-way or two one-way relationships. This is very interesting to me because it shows how essentially a two-way relationship can exist in a one-way relationship, Right? If you just look at these relationships that bubble up, there's a small subset there, but it's the people that have these tighter interactions. Uh, point number three is we can kind of get our hands on some of these tight-knit circles. Even though our systems for modeling social relationships in online software are really crude as that video showed, Right? I think it's really crude to say, are you my friend or not? Okay, how do you know this person? Right? It's 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 a very blunt instrument. Even though those systems, or follow, you know, follow this person, follow this person, those are very blunt, but they drive engagement. Even when you have that kind of meta-system, you can look at the underlying communication and activity pathways to reveal some of these tight-knit circles. So I mentioned before there's these 90% reciprocal relationships, looking at messaging and Twitter, Uh, looking at Facebook data, of the people you have in your network, only 15% well, people have actually exchanged like Facebook mail messages then another interesting study that was done showed that looking at mobile call logs and location you can deduce with 95 percent accuracy who people's actual friends are All right so if you look at communication activity in any of these systems you can get your hands on some of these tight-knit circles which as we'll see later are really valuable this is why I think it's really interesting that we're seeing mobile phone operating systems become social at the core, right? If anybody's seen the HTC Sense UI? No? Okay, if you haven't seen it, it's an Android operating system platform. You should take a look at it. They have a section called Make It Mine, which essentially they pull in all these social behaviors and pivot them around people. It's sort of the core of the phone experience. Uh, Another example of this, has anybody seen Moto Blur by Motorola? Just came out like two days ago. Again, front and center, social is all over the phone. I mean, here's this little thing to make a phone call. Everything else is what people are doing, stay connected to them, so on and so forth. So it's interesting to me that this is a big growing area for modeling social relationships, and it really makes sense when you look at the fact that you can find out who you actually give a, a hoot about based on your messaging behavior, right? And if you look at where usage right now of social software is happening. Facebook has 65 million active mobile users. They're on 12 different mobile platforms. And people who use Facebook on the mobile uh, use it 3.3 times a day on average and 23 minutes a day, which is a lot, right? Um, So these integrations on mobile systems, when you start integrating social relationships with actual messaging, with the device you use to communicate, that's a really powerful thing, and I think is going to be just going further and further if uh, recent stuff is any kind of indication. So point number four, and again, this one might be something that you intuitively sense, but the more attention you get, the more you contribute to a point. So when you move, when you make the transition on Twitter to a thousand update, or sorry, a thousand followers, on average, people's daily updates increase from three to six. When they get to 1,700 followers, they basically have 10 average daily updates. We saw in Yahoo Answers that contribution increased 480% when relationships increased by 20%. Even in online communities without these explicit social relationships, these one to one personal relationships in place, attention can drive contribution. Or as this data shows from uh, this crowdsourcing study in 2008, less attention equals less contribution. So they looked at the time interval from, uh, they looked at the last video uploaded, how many views you had on the video prior to that. As the number of views on the video you had prior to your last updated one dropped, people's contributions trailed off and ultimately they stopped contributing. All right, so decreasing attention leads to decreasing production in this case. And I said up to a point When we first installed relationships inside of Yahoo Answers, contribution first jumped by 480%, but when those numbers went up by another 20, it actually dropped by 35%. Same thing sort of happens on Twitter. As though initially the number of posts increases as the number of followers increases, it eventually hits this saturation point, and it sort of flatlines, and it doesn't increase anymore. So more people following you after a point doesn't result in more production sort of hit this cap Uh, point five is one-way relationships are a pretty good way for grabbing that attention you need to drive contribution right so I mentioned before and the last point that attention drives contribution and these one-way relationships are pretty good ways to model that um, that that incentive So the reasons for that is they're relatively lightweight to set up. You don't have to wait for anybody to reciprocate. Um, They give you sort of an incentive by seeing how many people are staying up to date with what you're doing. And they support what I talked about before, this ability for your audience to be bigger than the number of people you're actually paying attention to. And alongside some of these other points as well. Very recently, there was some... uh, research done by Cameron Marlow, who used to be over at Yahoo's, now over at Facebook on how do Facebook fan pages grow and what does their fan base look like. So for those of you that don't know, Facebook page is something you can have a one-way relationship with. You can basically say, I follow, I'm, I'm a fan of this. And what's interesting to see here is, again, underlying this system is the connectedness of these sort of one-way follow actions. So because Facebook has all the connection graph data, they can actually see, well, how connected are these people that are following these um, pages? And essentially, the sequence of people following this stuff is kind of a long domino that creates these very long chains of connections. And it's, it's really interesting that how this stuff actually is started by multiple people independently starting a chain that ultimately merges together in one big group, and that's what you see here, right? So somebody will say, I'm a fan of this. A few other people will see it in their newsfeed. They'll start seeing their fans. They create this small group. And then those groups start to merge and create a big group. Um, Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, 90% are one one big group. 15% start from their own way. And it carries through across a whole bunch of different stuff. If you're interested more in this, the study is actually pretty cool. Next thing is that even though one-way relationships are good for broadcasting and encouraging contribution, it's really the the real relationships, that tight knit circle that I mentioned, that you can sort of detect through messaging, that drive even more content creation. So there's this thing called the 012 effect, which is when somebody, when two of your friends have done something, it more than doubles your probability of doing it when only one person does it. And if we go back to that. Uh, Twitter study I mentioned earlier where they sort of defined friends. I showed in the previous graph, which I'll pull up a second ago, the number of posts as your followers increases begins to saturate, saturates somewhere around here. But when you look at the number of posts versus the number of friends increasing, it goes higher and doesn't really show any clear signs of saturating. So... The more followers you get drives a li- more production at the beginning, but then it sort of levels off, whereas the more real friends you have, or the way they define friends, production keeps going off. When you compare the two, it looks something like this. Right? So the interesting thing about this is these real relationships can actually drive more production than these sort of pseudo relationships, which I think is a pretty, pretty neat thing. And, of course, I can't, um, I can't leave you with the perception that it's only social relationships that drives how much content people create and how they create it. There's lots of different ways you can encourage stuff. Um, tools you do make, uh, make a big difference. Does anybody recognize where this is from? Do you think it looks pretty? Who says this looks pretty? Okay. Do you recognize where this is from? Still MySpace. Who thinks this looks pretty? Who thinks it looks better than the one on the left? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did this poor guy have to do to make his profile page look like this? Well, he had to manipulate HTML with multiple nested levels. So he had to go table, 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 TD, table, 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 T body, TD, table, 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 TD font, table, 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 TD body, TD font, font. Right, so it's very, very hard in this environment to make something that most people perceive as better than the other thing, but it's very easy to make something crappy. Um, so another way you can encourage contributions, in particular quality contributions, is to create better tools for contribution, right? And um, Will Wright, who's the creator of Spore and um, The Sims, has a really great quote where he says, most of the stuff people make is crappy, but if we give them the ability to make better stuff, They'll make better stuff, right? So playing with some of these other aspects of the design of these systems and the way they're structured can also help drive more contribution and, in particular, better quality contribution. So taking a look at the information I sort of had access to and was able to play around with it, the kind of way I look at the answer to this question, as I mentioned before, everybody said, well, if you find anything out, tell me. I'd be really interested. So this is sort of what what I think came out of this, is that, in general, I think we can all agree that the context we model around where people can interact shapes their behavior. One of the ways we can model context is by looking and representing, by allowing people to declare and represent their social relationships in software. That creates a specific kind of context. The most common ways of doing that right now are no relationship, but we can still infer some stuff, like location. Uh, communities, groups, and then these kind of one-to-one relationships, both two-way and one-way, and one-way with all its complexities. Which of those models we utilize and how, as some of this data showed, I think do have an impact on contribution, and they do skew how people behave in those systems to the effect that I sort of illustrated. But what was really more interesting to me than that was some of these kind of core behaviors that are underlying all these things things like attention limits, things like tight-knit circles, things like using activity signals to drive tight-knit circles, and things like contribution drivers. So that's some interesting stuff in that these different elements, despite these different elements, similar structures sort of emerge. And last but not least, it's not only social relationships that drive contribution. There's a lot more to think through when moving through these systems to make them um, interoperate and work well. And um, that's what I had for you. If you're interested in more stuff like this, this is the uh, RSS version of my thoughts. This is the one-way follow version of my thoughts. And this is the classic address book version of my thoughts. And you're welcome to use whichever model uh, encourages most contribution on your part. So (laughs) thank you.
3: All, All right, right, we've got time for a couple of quick questions. Anybody? Information overload?
1: What was my what? It's,
3: oh, Luke. Uh, Luke w. Luke. Design. There you go. How do I know? Because everybody told me I'd screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, let me bring you a microphone.
1: And a book. Because and a I book. Like you. Ooh, you get a book if you ask a question. That's an incentive for contribution. Here
3: you go, Thank on. you.
1: <laughs> Thank you much. I uh, was wondering, um,
3: a lot of the. Uh, uh, interactions and examples that you uh, talked about there uh, used as its uh, basic construct, the you know, number of connections or people having a connection with somebody else. How might you uh, uh, talk or integrate like aspects of, we'll say, social shopping? Um, so there's a difference between, there might be somebody that I follow, but um, they're a horrible dresser and I'm never going to buy what they buy. Or maybe it's somebody like Zachy Warfel. You know, who I just might casually
1: know, but he's such a good dresser, I'm always going to buy
3: what he gets. How How do you fit that in there?
1: I think that's one of the points on some of this stuff is that the way we're modeling these relationships right now is very crude. It doesn't get to any of that subtlety, right? Like, when I'm talking to my mom versus when I'm talking to my best friend versus when I'm talking to someone at work versus when I'm talking to someone at this conference, I totally change my mindset and my conversation and everything, right? Online social experiences do absolutely nothing to account for that context and that understanding that people have between each other. And I think over time we're going to see an increasing sophistication, hopefully, with the way we represent these relationships so that we can get at some of that stuff, right? And I, th- I think what's going to drive that is the sheer volume of stuff that's hitting you so that you're going to have to tune based on these different aspects of things you care about. So like, uh, as w- yeah. As more and more people contribute, you gotta filter down to oh, this is the specific thing I care about, right? Like I'm gonna follow Todd, but I actually what I only really want to hear about is not his closed selection, but his thoughts on prototyping or something. I don't know. Who
3: doesn't?
1: <laughs> who doesn't <laughs> want to hear
3: about
0: Todd's fashion?
3: We have
0: another question. Hey, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if I just missed this on the graphs, or, or maybe you said it out loud, but. Um, on a lot of the graphs that were showing number of posts over time versus number of followers, um, it's a little confusing because the number of posts are cumulative unless you're talking about a particular time frame. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, your number of posts are always going up um, and you would assume that your number of followers is probably always going
1: up. But they're they're getting bigger based on how much you contribute per day, right? So as you saw, as the contributor graphs went up, as the follower graphs went up, you jump from three to six and then ten. So you're going to hit a higher cumulative sooner. The more attention you have, right? Got one more. All right.
3: Luke, I was wondering whether you had any insight as to the uh, number of services that somebody contributes in, whether that affects the, uh, you know, the size of their following you know if somebody is is participating actively in facebook linkedin twitter have a, have a few wikis and blogs where does that drop off you know i mean how do they sustain i think that's
1: i think that's great further analysis like so if you have how does this interact in across multiple things um, i don't know it it's hard enough getting some of this information right um and i agree some of these data points are not as media as we'd love them to be, right? But hopefully that changes over time, and we learn even more.
3: Well, certainly they're trying. To, the services are trying to make it easier by creating instant connections to using your Facebook ID mm-hmm. to log in, you know, to to wikis and making that kind yeah. of universal. Yeah, but I think they're mostly doing so that. I think they're mostly doing post. that to drive
1: traffic, mm-hmm. right? So one of the main reasons to get your stuff inside of Facebook's news feed is because people click through that and you go back to your. So So a lot of the integration things I think you're seeing right now are driven off of that kind of concern. There's, you know, there's people who believe newsfeed optimization now is akin to search engine optimization Mm -hmm. a couple years ago, right, in terms of Mm -hmm. getting access to traffic. Uh, So that's that's an interesting way of playing it. I don't know if it necessarily, what they're trying to do is leverage the fact that you've got some declared social relationships over here. And theoretically, stuff from sources you know is more interesting to you, so you'll probably click on that versus something you find in some random search engine or browsing the web, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, just personally, did you notice when you you, uh, you when you increased your uh, Twitter volume, did, they, did you drop the number of posts on your blog or, you know, anything? I mean, are there tradeoffs that you've uh, noticed in your know. own experience? I don't know. There's
1: definitely some interrelationships. I don't know. I've actually started blogging more lately. But it's more of a result of the fact that my eight-month-old son is letting me sleep than uh, <laughs> you know any any other social media aspects of things. But. all right,
3: thank cool. you everybody. Okay, for your thanks, questions. guys. And
1: once again, thank you, Luke.
0: To hear even more presentations from the 2009 Idea Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual Idea Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you, our listeners.